Welcome to the weekly update where we go in depth in a particular topic and joining me today is uh, Han Nguyen, the Director of Medical Workforce at Western Health and Ange Gomick, who is the Medical Workforce Consultant at Northern Health Doctors. She's currently working across multiple health services supporting the implementation of the agreement. Good morning to both of you. Morning. Good morning. So today we'll be working through doctors implementation frequently asked questions. And these FAQs have been derived from uh, our members of the Victoria Medical Executive and HMO Managers Group, uh, and from our HRIR colleagues as, that are part of the VHA Reference Group and Special Interest Group. Uh, we'll be working through both DIT and Medical Specialist uh, FAQs today, and we'll start with doctors in training. The first clause we'll be working through, which we'll bring up on screen, is the maximum hours and consecutive shifts clause at clause 33.2. We brought that up onto screen and just briefly, it provides that maximum hours and consecutive shifts uh, with respect to a doctor's hours of work are not inclusive of periods of on-call, must not exceed 140 hours in two roster weeks or, more, or work more than seven consecutive night shifts. It continues further that where a doctor is exceeded or likely to exceed those hours of work, the doctor must advise the health service as soon as practicable and the health service will not be in breach of the clause where the doctor applies for unrostered overtime. So, Hein, uh, we'll start with you. Um, what are some of the frequently asked questions that you've heard or that you've um, you've received through our engagement with our colleagues in the sector? I think, um, look, uh, the key is clarification of um, what should be included in counting the fortnightly hours. Absolutely. So uh, as we briefly took the members through uh, with that clause on screen, the clause provides at 33.2a that it's not inclusive of periods of on-call. And I think that's probably what was concerning health services the most is those blocks of on-call were captured within the 140 hours. And it's, it's um, good to clarify that it's definitely not. For the sake of completeness, however, all other hours of work are included. So that includes both rostered and unrostered overtime physical recall and remote recall or telephone recall, training time and additional or locum shifts at that health service. That's good. Now, I suppose if we're including unrostered overtime and things like that, um, what should a health service do if a doctor exceeds the hours? So the clause provides that a doctor must not exceed 140 hours in two roster weeks. And that's a that's a pretty firm position that the agreement takes. It talks about must not exceed as opposed to you know shall or should not. It's quite firm. I think we would all agree that at that number of hours in a in a fortnight, consideration must genuinely be given to the safety of patients and the doctor themselves having regard to the risks of fatigue. Now, the tricky bit is, again, if I would push it on it, that um, it's unrostered overtime, it's recall, it's things that we can't control. Is there an obligation for the doctor to inform the health service if um, they're coming close to the 140 hours in a two week period? I think that's a really good point. So um, as you mentioned, Han, there are instances where maybe medical workforce don't see those hours being worked because often those hours are being arranged at the local level and being you know, approved at the local level and that's not coming up and reflected in a payroll system maybe until the end of the pay period. That's been contemplated in the clause. Um, so it provides a clause, subclause B, 
that a doctor who has exceeded or is likely to exceed the hours of work pre prescribed in subclause 33.2 as a result of the performance of unrostered overtime, the doctor should, as soon as practicable, alert the employer in accordance with subclause 41.2b. Now, we're relying on the doctors to notify us. So will a health service be in breach if, um, you know, we only become aware of it sort of, you know, after the two week period after it occurs? Uh, that goes back on to the the question you just asked around, you know, visibility of those hours and, and you know, whether the hospital will be, you know, in trouble if uh, if the doctor exceeds those hours, if you only become aware of those additional hours, you know, when the unrostered overtime form is put in or when payroll is run. Um, thankfully, the clause does provide that a hospital will not be in breach of the clause if the doctor applies for unrostered overtime after the relevant period expires. And we would say that relevant period is within the the the, the two week period, for example, or the two week roster period uh, that applies for that 140 hours uh, uh, cap. So, Hein, that now takes us to the next uh, FAQ, which was around overtime rates for casuals under the doctors and training agreement. And I'll briefly introduce the clause on screen and, and particularly we're talking about uh, that members can see on screen. There's a table that you'll see on the right hand side. It talks about casual overtime rate and uh, below it, it has a note that says includes 25% casual loading provided in clause 19.3. Hi, and I understand there has been some FAQs around this table because it's new. Yeah, look, it's uh, something that we've not seen before and it's quite new. Can you tell us uh, where it may have come from? So the table uh, within that clause that we provided on screen was replicated from clause 20.2 of the Medical Practitioners Award 2020. And it was agreed during bargaining that having a table in the agreement uh, is the most appropriate way to represent the overtime penalties that apply to permanent and casual doctors in training. So moving on from uh, the casual overtime, well, we can talk now about casual shift penalties. Uh, and what I'll do is we'll provide that up on screen. Um, and it talks about Saturday and Sunday work. And it says any ordinary hours performed between midnight Friday and midnight Saturday must be paid at 150% of the doctor's ordinary hourly rate of pay. For hours worked between midnight Friday and midnight Sunday, they are in excess of the ordinary hours pursuant of subclause 33.1, Overtime rates must be paid. So, Han, I understand there's some questions that have come out about casuals who work weekends. Yeah, so can you um, sort of explain to us what the entitlement is for casuals when they do work Saturdays and Sundays? How's that applied? So, when calculating the shift penalty payments for casuals on a Saturday and Sunday, the cumulative method that we've adopted uh, should be should be uh, prescribed, and and the cumulative method is where you apply the base plus casual loading, plus the shift penalty. And we'll provide an example of what that looks like on screen for Saturday and Sunday. So for both a Saturday and Sunday shift for a permanent workforce, it's 150%. Um, so then what you apply on top of that uh, is the 25%. So you add the 25% loading as opposed to multiplying it against, and that results in uh, both Saturday and Sunday for casuals who perform shift penalties uh, at 175% for each hour worked for those shifts. Interesting. So that covers off um, overtime, but do casuals attract a different entitlement for the other penalties? So we're talking shift penalty, Friday evening shifts and night duty. It's a good question. So what differentiates between Saturdays and Sundays and the shift penalties that are provided for uh, for shift penalty Friday evening shifts and night duty allowance is that 
those three that I just mentioned each have a rate in the back of the agreement. So the agreement actually prescribes what that rate should be and fixes that rate as opposed to Saturday and Sunday, which was a little bit, uh, I would say, not as clear. Um, Saturday and Sunday didn't have a rate in the back of the agreement, whereas the shift penalty, Friday evening shift penalty and night duty allowance does. Um, as members can see that we've got on screen, um, both the shift penalty refers to an additional 2.5% of the ordinary weekly rate of pay. That's represented in a table in the rear of the agreement. Friday evening shift talks about 25% of the doctor's ordinary base hourly rate of pay. And night duty allowance talks about 25% of the doctor's ordinary base hourly rate of pay. So in those circumstances, what we would say is that those doctors receive the rate that's in the back of the agreement, whether you're permanent or casual. So that takes us uh, to recall. And uh, members would, would recall, uh, and there's no pun intended there, uh, that we have introduced remote recall for doctors in training. We will get to that shortly, but I understand, and, and bringing Ange into the conversation, um, there's the introduction of um, some clarity around return to the workplace. Um, but what I understand, Ange, is that there's some questions that have arisen with respect to the recall on a Sunday or a public holiday. Yeah, thanks, Daniel. Um, on Saturday, sorry, on Sundays now, we have had a change in the EBA as noted in clause 36.3 to increase the overtime rate to 200%. And the question we've got is how does that apply to the first two hours of an on-site recall? Should that now be changed to reflect the overtime rate of 200%? So the agreement contemplates that more than one penalty can arise. And this is you know, not new. And this is something that the three of us have spoken about before at length. Um, although only the highest applies, and this is provided in subclause 42.7, and it states that where a doctor has performed duty that entitles that doctor to more than one penalty, only the penalty of the higher value will be payable. And for the purpose of that clause, penalty also means overtime. So a doctor shouldn't receive less than the applicable overtime rate when recalled uh, in on a Sunday uh, so, or a public holiday. So therefore, recall should be paid at the Sunday and public holiday overtime rates where recall occurs on those days, not the 150% that is provided for within the clause. So, Ange, that takes us to recall without return to the workplace. And we that's kind of, you know, referred to as maybe telephone recall or remote recall. It's found that it's a new clause at clause 39A. I'll bring it up on screen very briefly uh, just to uh, refresh members' minds. Um, I'll skip point one, but point two provides that where recall to duty can be managed without the doctor having to return to their workplace, such as by telephone or computer, the employer will be paid a minimum of one hour at the appropriate overtime rate for each occasion, provided that multiple recalls within a discrete hour will not attract additional payment. Now, Ange, I understand there has been some questions around what the applicable overtime rate is. Yeah, there absolutely has. And our question is, um, what is the applicable overtime rate for those occasions? So if we apply the premise that a doctor who is recalled remotely should be paid no more than a doctor performing physical recall, then each instance of remote recall should attract 150% for the first two hours and then double time thereafter, which is consistent with the overtime clause. The language in clause 39A supports this approach, albeit not expressly, with the reference to each occasion. 
So the exception would be that where the doctor performs remote recall on a Sunday or a public holiday, in which case our response that we just discussed around physical recall would be relied upon, the doctor would receive the higher rate, which would be the appropriate overtime rate on the Sunday and public holiday. Each instance of recall, however, under this clause should stand alone uh, and attract 150% for the first two hours, then double time thereafter, meaning that a doctor who is recalled remotely three times for the minimum one hour in an on-call period, so three discrete periods of one hour recall, then each of those would be paid at 150%, which means that doctor would attract three hours at 150%. If that same doctor uh, in a different on-call period was recalled remotely once for three hours, then they would be paid 150% for the first two hours, then double time for the third hour. So Ange, this now takes us to um, a, a topic that uh, is, is hotly discussed, and this is CME. And not a lot changed in the CME space in comparison to the 2018 round of bargaining where the parties undertook a complete rewrite. But there has been an addition around uh, information technology and accessories, uh, which uh, exceeds that which, which was currently provided under portable technological aids. And I might benefit members by taking them very briefly through that clause. We've got it up on screen. So it provides that any addition, sorry, in addition to any value of the portable technological aids purchased and reimbursed, uh, a doctor will subject, uh, subject to the terms of this clause be reimbursed for costs for the purchase of information technology devices or accessories up to a maximum value of $5,000 pro rata for fractional specialists from within the amount set out in the clause, inclusive of any applicable fringe benefit tax to be used to support or engage in CME activities. It also continues that for the avoidance of doubt, the total value of the IT device or accessory uh, is $5,000 plus the value of any portable technological aids and the claim for reimbursements of costs associated with this clause is subject to the reasonability test and necessity test. Uh, it will not be considered reasonable or necessary uh, if for a doctor to purchase and seek reimbursement for substantially similar items by way of example, notebook computers, tablets, mobile phones, monitors, printers, etc. in consecutive financial years. So, Andrew, I understand that despite the clause, this clause is, you know, relatively you know, explanatory. I mean, the parties did spend some time inserting this. And the reason for this is I think what, what has happened is that members would recall that throughout COVID, there was a, a, a flexibility encouraged by the Department of Health around um, introducing things to be claimed for CME when, you know, um, members uh, members employees and weren't able to travel so doctors weren't able to travel they weren't able to uh, you know participate in CME in that traditional sense and the department was a lot more flexible and this is the same to have what has been reflected in the agreement um, understand there's a question just around scope Ange. yes we've been asked a number of times what is included what items are included under the technological devices and appliances it's a good question um, because it is new, uh, and I think broadly speaking, items that don't fall within the sorry items that fall within the scope of information technology devices or accessories are those that don't fall within the scope of portable technological aids. Uh, and I'll bring that clause up on screen. That that definition it provides for portable technological aids, meaning items which are easily portable and designed for use away from the doctor's usual work site 
can operate without an external power supply and are designed as a complete unit. Uh, for the purposes of this agreement, items of a capital nature, such as an ultrasound imaging device, are not portable technological aids. So what that would mean is IT devices, such as desktop computers or desktop screens, would now fall within the scope of CME reimbursable items, noting that under the previous agreement, they weren't portable technological aids because you can't carry uh, a computer screen and you can't carry a desktop computer around. You have to have it uh, plugged into external power supply. Uh, for the sake of clarity, however, you can't use this clause to buy a capital item. So uh, if it's a capital item such as a ultrasound imaging device, we would say that that is not an IT device or accessory. The intent is to capture things like desktop computers, desktop screens, um, items that previously couldn't be claimed around that IT device and accessory space uh, that, that now can be claimed. So that now takes us to what I would say is Ange's favourite topic, which is fringe benefit tax. And I, can I just say that I have learnt a lot from Ange uh, with respect to FBT. Uh, I, I knew a little bit about FBT when I didn't have to pay tax uh, when I, well, I still had to pay tax uh, ATO, but I paid less tax uh, before the 2016 uh, change in the FBT rules for public health. Um, so I had to undertake a crash course on that. But FBT in the context uh, of claiming items of such nature as you know desktop computers laptops screens iphones ipads and this is a topic that i think health services are starting to consider more noting that the clause in the previous agreement and maybe even the agreement before talked about fringe benefit tax being considered as part of the cme cap and having to be deducted from the cme cap but a lot of places didn't really have an eye to it but now they are because we're starting to see some of these things come into the agreement that i would say are you know relatively generous in comparison to elsewhere in the in the sector um there is nowhere else in the sector where you can claim your um you know your, your desktop or your laptop or your smartphone from your from your health service so i think a lot of times we're starting to see health services really look at the clause in greater detail and fbt is something that is coming up a lot i, I understand so thanks Daniel. When claiming for technological devices, we need to ensure that the doctors are aware that they may also include a fringe benefits tax expense. The current threshold for um, technology, technological, that's a hard word for me to say, devices is currently $300 and it's reverting back to $100 from the 1st of July. Noting, of course, that FBT is applicable when the doctor could not claim the expenditure item outright in their personal income tax return. They can, however, get a deduction for depreciation, which means that they can claim the cost of that item over a number of years. So if the doctor couldn't claim it um, in whole in one year on their tax return, it's going to apply FBT. There are specific rules and exemptions for portable technology items that allow you to claim it in one hit. So what we're talking about here is items, again, that don't fit under that portable devices clause. And what I would say is that VHIA doesn't provide advice as to whether something attracts FBT. Um, but from what I understand, Ange, is that if it isn't a portable technological aid and it's now in the scope of you know desktop computers or a desktop screen, it is very likely that it may attract FBT and health services should have a mind 
to seeking advice on that and deducting the appropriate FBT from the doctor's CME cap. Yes, that's correct, Daniel. And a number of the health services are now including an FBT calculator in their uh, CME systems to assist the doctors with identifying what their deduction, that what their claim can be. So if you buy a desktop for five thousand dollars, you can only get five thousand dollars back, and you will have and you'll incur FBT as well. So um, you won't get any more than that. Or sorry, if you um, claim a a uh, desktop for two and a half thousand dollars it's mo more likely that you're going to get five thousand dollars taken off yes. your scme balance that's probably a better example and i think health services had played with the concept of fbt when we spoke you know in the previous agreement round about international travel and tacking on a public uh, sorry a public holiday tacking on a, i'm really keen for christmas tacking on <laughs> a, a a private holiday Yes. Uh, on either side. And I think that's where hospitals started to come up with some of these weird and wonderful ways to deduct from the to, from the CME cap uh, for, for consideration for uh, FBT. Um, but this will be something where hospitals really should place into their policy and maybe share that with doctors, that this is something that doctors need to be aware of as well. And um, getting in touch with uh, some of your, if you don't have an FBT calculator, maybe getting in touch with a couple of the hospitals that do. And Ange might briefly give a plug to a couple of the hospitals that do have that calculator. And uh, if, if you don't have one, you might want to get in touch with them. So my colleagues at Northern Health have developed a little calculator that they um, is there. So reach out to Liz Shaw or Phil Martin at um, Northern Health that they're, they've been hot to trot on this because it helps um, with answering the queries that they get from the medical staff. So they developed that as, a, as an easy way to answer the questions. Fantastic. So uh, I might move now to specialist, and and we have had a question, that, a couple of questions that have come up in the space of internal locums, Hein. Yes, internal locums is a, a new provision, I suppose, in the medical specialists. Um, you know, can you confirm for us, uh, you know, what rates would we apply to internal locums? Um, how would we pay them? Um, so for members that are watching, and Hein and Ange wouldn't know this, but by the time this goes out, there will be a podcast that we've just issued on internal locums. But for the sake of completeness, so if everyone comes to this uh, comes to this implementation uh, podcast and they haven't watched it, um, I will take the members through a couple of those questions that you've got, Hein, but a lot of these will be answered uh, in our previous podcast, um, which members can watch, and there's, there's a lot more questions I'm sure the people will have. Um, but the rate that's paid to internal locums uh, is the uh, the hourly rate for a fractional specialist uh, at the 10.6 to 17.5 hour a week band for the doctor's classification plus 25%. Uh, the clause provides that payments for shift work Saturdays and Sundays and penalty payments for public holidays worked also apply to internal locums. Right, so to me, the basic assumption is that they're like casuals, right? Just they're called something differently. So, you know, what are the entitlements that are provided to internal locums? It's a, it's a good point you raise, Hein, and, and really, um, the nomenclature of internal locum versus casual is really just by name, and what we what we say is that it's a it's a mode of employment to address uh, shortfalls in labour, and um, which really is the same for uh, for casuals as it is for internal locums. But what entitlements are provided? Um, so the clause provides at subclause F 
that except where expressly excluded, an internal locum will be entitled to receive allowances prescribed by part F of the agreement. But there's also a list of terms that don't apply at G, and these are on screen for those that are watching. Um, it provides that annual leave, paid personal leave, paid compassionate leave, paid family violence leave, absences on defence leave, CME leave, clinical support time, notice period before termination and special disaster leave do not apply to internal locums. So those cover off largely those leave things. Um, what about uh, what other entitlements are excluded from internal locums? Uh, so internal locums are entitled to things like CME support. So locums do get CME. They do get unpaid personally for carers responsibilities because that's derived from the Fair Work Act. They do receive unpaid family violence leave, which again is derived from the Fair Work Act, the same as unpaid compassionate leave. They also receive unpaid pre-adoption leave. They also receive parental leave, but there are some eligibility requirements that they would need to meet. And they also receive unpaid ceremonial leave. So Hein and Ange, that takes us to the end of the FAQs for this morning. It's important to note for members that this is only part one of what we would anticipate is at least a two-part series. And there is a number of other questions that we've been uh, working through with our, with our friends uh, in the Victorian Medical Executive or the HMO group or our reference group, which will uh, necessitate a further uh, implementation podcast in early 2023. But I did want to thank you both for joining me this morning. It's been fantastic to have both um, Hein, uh, your support and, and your and your input through bargaining. Uh, and Ange uh, has been uh, absolutely uh, critical um, to us being able to field queries from the sector. Ange does a lot of work across multiple different employers uh, and is able to give us you know, very positive um, support live in time. Um, so it's great to have people from the ground like Hein and Ange join us this morning. Thank you both. Um, I hope you have a fantastic Christmas. Um, Ange in particular, who is going away uh, tomorrow morning. So by the, by the time this is uh, released, Ange will already be out of the country. And that's not representative of how concerned she is about the reception um, that will be received by the advice she's given this morning. Uh, but thank you both for joining me. Um, and uh, I look forward to uh, for you joining me uh, in for part two in early 2023. Thank you both. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks, Daniel.